Section 22 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tasha Hobbs Peterson. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huizinga, translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Section 22. Chapter 19. Art and Life. Part 1. If a man of culture of 1840 had been asked to characterize French civilization in the 15th century in a few words, his answer would probably have been largely inspired by impressions from Barant's Histoire des Ducs de Bourgogne and Hugo's Notre Dame de Paris. The picture called up by these would have been grim and dark, scarcely illuminated by any ray of serenity and beauty. The experiment repeated today would yield a very different result. People would now refer to Joan of Arc, to Villon's poetry, but above all to the works of art. The so-called primitive Flemish and French masters, Van Eyck, Rangier van der Weyden, Fouquet, Memling, with Klaus Sluter, the sculptor, and the great musicians, would dominate their general idea of the epoch. The picture would altogether have changed its color and tone. The aspect of mere cruelty and misery, as conceived by Romanticism, which derived its information chiefly from the chronicles, would have made room for a vision of pure and naive beauty, of religious fervor and profound mystic peace. It is a general phenomenon that the idea which works of art give us of an epoch is far more serene and happy than that which we glean in reading its chronicles, documents, or even literature. Plastic art does not lament. Even when giving expression to sorrow or pain, it transports them to an elegiac sphere where the bitter taste of suffering has passed away, whereas the poets and historians, voicing the endless griefs of life, always keep their immediate pungency and revive the harsh realities of bygone misery. Now, our perception of former times, our historical organ, so to say, is more and more becoming visual. Most educated people of today owe their conception of Egypt, Greece, or the Middle Ages much more to the sight of their monuments, either in the original or by reproductions, than to reading. The change of our ideas about the Middle Ages is due less to a weakening of the romantic sense than to the substitution of artistic for intellectual appreciation. Still, this vision of an epoch resulting from the contemplation of works of art is always incomplete, always too favorable, and therefore fallacious. It has to be corrected in more than one sense. Confining ourselves to the period in question, we first have to take into consideration the fact that, proportionately, far more of the written documents than of the monuments of art have been preserved. The literature of the declining Middle Ages, with some few exceptions, is known to us fairly completely. 
we have products of all genres, the most elevated and the most vulgar, the serious and the comic, the pious and the profane. Our literary tradition reflects the whole life of the epoch. Written tradition, moreover, is not confined to literature. Official records, in infinite number, enable us to augment almost indefinitely the accuracy of our picture. Art, on the contrary, is by its very nature limited to a less complete and less direct expression of life. Moreover, we only possess a very special fraction of it. Outside ecclesiastical art, very little remains. Profane art and applied art have only been preserved in rare specimens. This is a serious want, because these are just the forms of art which would have most clearly revealed to us the relation of artistic production to social life. The modest number of altarpieces and tombs teaches us too little in this respect. The art of the epoch remains to us as a thing apart from the history of the time. Now, really to understand art, it is of great importance to form a notion of the function of art in life, and for that it does not suffice to admire surviving masterpieces. All that has been lost asks our attention too. Art in those times was still wrapped up in life. Its function was to fill with beauty the forms assumed by life. These forms were marked and potent. Life was encompassed and measured by the rich efflorescence of the liturgy. The sacraments, the canonical hours of the day, and the festivals of the ecclesiastical year. All the works and all the joys of life, whether dependent on religion, chivalry, trade, or love, had their marked form. The task of art was to adorn all these concepts with charm and color. It is not desired for its own sake, but to decorate life with the splendor which it could bestow. Art was not yet a means, as it is now, to step out of the routine of everyday life to pass some moments in contemplation. It had to be enjoyed as an element of life itself, as the expression of life's significance. Whether it served to sustain the flight of piety, or to be an accompaniment to the delights of the world, it was not yet conceived as mere beauty. Consequently, we might venture the paradox that the Middle Ages knew only applied art. They wanted works of art only to make them subservient to some practical use. Their purpose and their meaning always preponderated over their purely aesthetic value. We should add that the love of art for its own sake did not originate in an awakening of the craving for beauty but developed as a result of superabundant artistic production. In the treasuries of princes and nobles, objects of art accumulated so as to form collections. No longer serving for practical use, they were admired as articles of luxury and curiosity. Thus the taste for art was born, which the Renaissance was to develop consciously. In the great works of art of the 15th century, Notably in the altarpieces and tombs, the nature of the subject was far more important than the question of beauty. Beauty was required because the subject was sacred, or because the work was destined for some august purpose. This purpose is always of a more or less practical sort. The triptych served to intensify worship at the great festivals, 
and to preserve the memory of the pious donors. The altarpiece of the Lamb by the Brothers Van Eyck was opened at high festivals only. Religious pictures were not the only ones which served a practical purpose. The magistrates of the towns ordered representations of famous judgments to decorate the law courts in order to solemnly exhort the judges to do their duty. Such are the judgment of Cambyses by Gerard David at Bruges, that of the Emperor Otto by Dirk Bouts at Louvain, and the lost pictures by Rogier van der Weyden once at Brussels. The following example may serve to illustrate the importance attached to the subjects represented. In 1384, an interview took place at Lellingham for the purpose of bringing about an armistice between France and England. The Duke of Berry had the naked walls of the old chapel, where the negotiating princes were to meet, covered with tapestry representing battles of antiquity. But John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, as soon as he saw them on entering, demanded that these pictures of war should be removed, because those who aspire to peace ought not to have scenes of combat and of destruction before their eyes. The tapestries were replaced by others, representing the instruments of the passion. The importance of the subject is closely connected with the artistic value in the case of portraits, which even now preserve some moral significance as souvenirs or heirlooms, because the sentiments determining their use are as vital as ever. In the Middle Ages, portraits were ordered for all sorts of purposes, but rarely we may be certain to obtain a masterpiece of art. Besides gratifying family affection and pride, the portraits served to enable betrothed persons to make acquaintance. The embassy sent to Portugal by Philip the Good in 1428 to ask for the hand of a princess was accompanied by John von Eyck with orders to paint her portrait. Court chroniclers liked to keep up the fiction that the royal fiancée had fallen in love with the unknown princess on seeing her portrait. For instance, Richard II of England, when courting the little Isabel of France, aged six. Sometimes it is even said that a selection was made by comparing portraits of different parties. When a wife had to be found for the young Charles VI, according to the Religieux de Saint-Denis, the choice lay between a Bavarian, an Austrian, and a Lorraine duchess. A painter of talent was sent to the three courts. Three portraits were submitted to the king, who chose the young Isabella of Bavaria, judging her by far the most beautiful. Nowhere was the practical use of works of art weightier than in connection with tombs, by far the most important domain of the sculpture of the epoch. The wish to have an effigy of the deceased was so strong that it claimed satisfaction even before the construction of the tomb. At the burial of a man of rank, he is represented either by a living man or by an effigy. At the funeral service of Bertrand de Gesclin at Saint-Denis, four men-at-arms, armed cap mounted on four chargers, well-appointed and comparisoned, representing the dead man as he was alive, entered the church. An account of the Polignacs of 1375 relating to a funeral ceremony shows the item six shillings to blaze for representing the dead knight at the funeral. 
At royal interments, a figure of leather in state dress represented the deceased. Great pains were taken to obtain a good likeness. Sometimes, there is more than one of these effigies in the cortege. Visitors to Westminster Abbey know these figures. Perhaps the origin of making funeral masks, which began in France in the 15th century, is to be found here. As all art was more or less applied art, the distinction between artists and craftsmen did not arise. The great masters, in the service of the courts of Flanders, of Berry, or of Burgundy, each of them an artist of very marked personality, did not confine themselves to painting pictures and to illuminating manuscripts. They were not above coloring statues, painting shields, and staining banners, or designing costumes for tournaments and ceremonies. Thus Melchior Brodelem, court painter to the first Duke of Burgundy, after holding the same position in the household of his father-in-law, the Count of Flanders, puts the finishing touches to five sculptured chairs for the palace of the Counts. He repairs and paints some mechanical apparatus at the castle of Hesden, used for wetting the guests with water by way of a surprise. He does work on a carriage for the Duchess. He directs the sumptuous decoration of the fleet, which the Duke had assembled at Sluys in 1387, for an expedition against the English, which, however, did not take place. So, too, at wedding festivities and funeral ceremonies, court painters were laid under contribution. Statues were painted in Jan van Eyck's workshop. He himself made a sort of map of the world for Duke Philip on which the towns and the countries were painted with marvellous delicacy. Hugo van der Goes designed posters advertising a papal indulgence at Ghent. When the Archduke Maximilian was a prisoner at Bruges in 1488, the painter Gerard David was sent for to decorate with pictures the wickets and shutters of his prison. Of all the handiwork of the masters of the 15th century, only a portion of a very special nature has survived. Some tombs, some altarpieces and portraits, numerous miniatures, also a certain number of objects of industrial art, comprising vessels used in religious worship, sacerdotal dress, and church furniture. But of secular work, except woodwork and chimneys, scarcely anything is left. How much more should we know of the art of the 15th century? If we could compare the bathing and hunting pieces of Jan van Eyck and Roger van der Weyden with their pietas and madonnas, it is not only profane pictures we lack. There are whole departments of applied art of which we can hardly even form a conception. For this, we lack the power to compare with the priestly vestments that have been preserved, the court costumes with their precious stones and tiny bells that have perished. We lack the actual sight of the brilliantly decorated warships, of which miniatures give us but a conventional and clumsy representation. Foissart, who, as a rule, is little susceptible to impressions of beauty, fairly exults in his descriptions of the splendors of a decked-out fleet, with its streamers gay with blazonry floating from the mastheads, and some reaching to the water. The ship of Philippe Le Hardy, decorated by Broderland, was painted azure and gold. Large heraldic shields surrounded the pavilion of the castle. The sails were studded with daisies, and the initials of the duke and the duchess, and bore the motto Il Metard. 
the nobles vied with each other in lavishing money on the decoration of their vessels painters had a good time of it says froissart there were not enough of them to go around and they got whatever prices they asked according to him many nobles had their shipmasts entirely covered with gold leaf guy de tremoy spent two thousand pounds on decorations and all this was paid by the poor people of france these lost products of decorative art would have revealed to us above all extravagant sumptuousness this trait is characteristic of the epoch it is to be found equally in the works which we do possess but as we study these only for the sake of their beauty we pay little attention to this element of splendor and of pomp which no longer interests us but which was just what people of that time prized most burgundo french culture of the expiring middle ages tends to oust beauty by magnificence the art of this period exactly reflects this spirit all that we cited above as characteristic of the mental processes of the epoch the craving to give a definite form to every idea and the overcrowding of the mind with figures and forms systematically arranged all this reappears in art there too we find the tendency to leave nothing without form without figure without ornament the flamboyant style of architecture is like the postlude of an organist who cannot conclude it decomposes all the formal elements endlessly it interlaces all the details there is not a line which has not its counterline the form develops at the expense of the idea the ornament grows rank hiding all the lines and all the surfaces a horror vacui reigns always a symptom of artistic decline all this means that the borderline between pomp and beauty is being obliterated decoration and ornament no longer serve to heighten the natural beauty of a thing they are overgrowing it and threaten to stifle it the further we get away from pure plastic art the more this rankness of formal decorative motifs is accentuated this may be very clearly observed in sculpture in the creation of isolated figures this overgrowth of forms does not occur the statues of moses as well and the pleurants of the tombs are as sober as the figures of donatello but where sculpture is performing a decorative function we at once find the overgrowth in looking at the tabernacle of dijon everyone will be struck by a lack of harmony between the sculpture of jacques de Beers and the painting of broderlam the picture painted for its own sake is simple and sober the reliefs on the contrary in which the purpose is decorative are complicated and overloaded we notice the same contrast between painting and tapestry textile art even when representing scenes and figures remains limited by its technique to decorative conception and expression hence we find the same craving for excessive ornamentation in the art of costume the essential qualities of pure art that is to say measure and harmony vanish altogether because splendor and adornment are the sole objects aimed at pride and vanity introduce a sensual element incompatible with pure art no epoch ever witnessed such extravagance of fashion as that extending from thirteen fifty to fourteen eighty here we can observe the unhampered expansion of the aesthetic sense of the time 
all the forms and dimensions of dress are ridiculously exaggerated. The female headdress assumes the conical shape of the henin, a form evolved from the little coif, keeping the hair under the kerchief. High embalmed foreheads are in fashion, with the temples shaved. Low-neck dresses make their appearance. The male dress has features still more bizarre. The immoderate length of the points of the shoes, called poulains, which the knights at Nicopolis had to cut off to enable them to flee. The laced waists, the balloon-shaped sleeves standing up at the shoulders, the two long hooplandes, and the two short doublets, the cylindrical or pointed bonnets, the hoods draped about the head in the form of a coxcomb or a flaming fire. A state costume was ornamented by hundreds of precious stones. The taste for unbridled luxury culminated in the court fetes. Everyone has read the descriptions of the Burgundian festivities at Lee in 1454, at which the guests took the oath to undertake the crusade, and at Bruges in 1468, on the occasion of the marriage of Charles the Bold with Margaret of York. It is hard to imagine a more absolute contrast than that of these barbarous manifestations of arrogant pomp and the pictures of the brothers Van Eyck, Dirk Bouts, and Roger van der Weyden, with their sweet and tranquil serenity. With their sweet and tranquil serenity. Nothing could be more insipid and ugly than the entremets, consisting of gigantic pies enclosing complete orchestras, full-rigged vessels, castles, monkeys and whales, giants and dwarfs, and all the boring absurdities of allegory. We find it difficult to regard these entertainments as something more than exhibitions of almost incredible bad taste. Yet we must not exaggerate the distance separating the two extreme forms of the art of the 15th century. In the first place, it is important to realize the function of festivals in the society of that time. They still preserved something of the meaning they have in primitive societies, that of the supreme expression of their culture, the highest mode of a collective enjoyment and an assertion of solidarity. At epochs of great renovations of society, like that of the French Revolution, we see that festivals resume this social and aesthetic function. Modern man is free, when he pleases, to seek his favorite distractions individually, in books, music, art, or nature. On the other hand, at a time when the higher pleasures were neither numerous nor accessible to all, people felt the need of such collective rejoicings as festivals. The more crushing the misery of daily life, the stronger the stimulants that will be needed to produce that intoxication with beauty and delight without which life would be unbearable. The 15th century, profoundly pessimistic, a prey to continual depression, could not forego the emphatic affirmation of the beauty of life afforded by these splendid and solemn collective rejoicings. Books were expensive, the country was unsafe, art was rare. The individual lacked the means of distraction. All literary, musical, and artistic enjoyment was more or less closely connected with festivals. Now festivals, in so far as they are an element of culture, require other things than mere gaiety. Neither the elementary pleasures of gaming, drinking, and love, nor luxury and pomp as such, are able to give them a framework. The festival requires style. 
if those of modern times have lost their cultural value, it is because they have lost style. In the Middle Ages, the religious festival, because of its high qualities of style founded on the liturgy itself, for a long time dominated all the forms of collective cheerfulness. The popular festival, which had its own elements of beauty in song and dance, was linked up with those of the church. It is towards the 15th century that an independent form of civil festival, with a style of its own, disengages itself from the ecclesiastical one. The rhetoricians of northern France and the Netherlands are the representatives of this evolution. Till then, only princely courts had been able to equip secular festivals with form and style, thanks to the resources of their wealth and the social conception of courtesy. Nevertheless, the style of the courtly festival could not but remain greatly inferior to that of religious festivals. In the latter, worship and rejoicing in common were always the expression of a sublime thought, which lent them a grace and dignity that even the excesses of their frequently burlesque details could not affect. On the other hand, the ideas glorified by the secular feast were nothing more than those of chivalry and of courtly love. The ritual of chivalry, no doubt, was rich enough to give these festivities a venerable and solemn style. There were the accolade, the vows, the chapters of the orders, the rules of the tournaments, the formalities of homage, service and precedence, all the dignified proceedings of kings-at-arms and heralds, all the brightness of blazonry and armor. But this did not suffice to satisfy all aspirations. The court fetes were expected to visualize in its entirety the dream of the heroic life, and here style failed, for in the fifteenth century the apparatus of chivalrous fancy was no longer anything but vain convention and mere literature. The staging of the amazing festivities of Lee or of Bruges is, so to say, applied literature. The ponderousness of material representation destroyed the last remainder of charm which literature, with the lightness of its airy reveries, had hitherto preserved. The unfaltering seriousness with which these monstrous pageants were organized is truly Burgundian. The ducal court seems to have lost, by its contact with the north, some qualities of the French spirit, for the preparation of the banquet of Lee, which was to crown and conclude a series of banquets, which the nobles provided, each in his turn, vying with each other in magnificence. Philip the Good appointed a committee, presided over by a knight of the Golden Fleece, Jean de Lenoy. The most trusted counsellors of the Duke, Antoine de Croix, the Chancellor Nicholas Roland himself, were frequently present at the sessions of the committee, of which Olivier de la Marche was a member. When the latter in his memoirs comes to this chapter, a feeling of awe still comes over him because great and honorable achievements deserve a lasting renown and perpetual remembrance. Thus he begins the narrative of these memorable things. It is needless to reprint it here, as it belongs to the Losi Camus of historical literature. Even from across the sea, people came to view the gorgeous spectacle. Besides the guests, a great number of noble spectators were present at the feast, disguised for the most part. First, everyone walked about to admire the fixed showpieces. Later came the entremets, that is to say, 
representations of personages and tableau vivant olivier himself played the important part of holy church making his appearance in a tower on the back of an elephant led by a gigantic turk the tables were loaded with the most extravagant decorations there were a rigged and ornamented carac a meadow surrounded by trees with a fountain rocks and a statue of st andrew the castle of lusignan with the fairy melusine a bird shooting seed near a windmill a wood in which wild beasts walked about and lastly a church with an organ and singers whose songs alternated with the music of the orchestra of twenty-eight persons which was placed in a pie end of section twenty two